Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When visitors go to a museum or historic site, research indicates that the thing that makes the biggest impression on them isn't the artifacts or the exhibits or the gift shop or the food service. It's the people. Any museum visit can be made into a positive experience by a good docent or guide, and it can be made unforgettable, for better or worse, by a living history presenter. Most of us have come across examples of history being presented by someone dressed as a Civil War soldier at a battlefield or museum. But who are these people? Who trains them? Can you make a living doing this? One person who might know the answers to these questions is interpretive consultant Gene Harmon, the principal of Inheriting Heritage LLC. He'll be our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor, not of the Brewster building, but of a uh, second-rate hotel on the outskirts of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, not representing Elizabeth City State University or East Carolina University, where I work during the day. Um, Speaking only for myself, as always, and our guest will do the same uh, again, as we usually do. I'm here in Elizabeth City to participate in a teacher symposium dealing with teaching the Civil War that will meet at an absurdly early hour on Thursday. So the only way to be here was to come the night before, but I stepped away from the Wednesday activities to come and talk with you. It's Civil War Talk radio time. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with the teachers. But in the meantime, after a week on the road with this hallowed ground, and uh, staying at some very nice places and, and uh, having good food and good settings. Uh, the hotel where 
where I'm, I'm quartered this evening is not quite up to that standard. I have put a bunch of towels and things under the doorway to try to keep the hallway noise down. And occasionally you'll hear this. There it is. When I move the chair an inch in any direction, it, it will creak back. But that's something over here to talk about. I do want to talk about uh, this hallowed ground, about the tour that just ended last week and that we'll do another one of in the spring. And uh, indeed, we may spend much of the first segment talking about that. Uh, and since historical tourism ties into the show's theme tonight, uh, we'll bring our guests in with the, the second and third segments to talk more about that. Uh, if you're one of the people who doesn't like the opening and is tired of hearing about uh, Greenville Stars soccer or ECU office politics, uh, stay with it anyway, because really... Uh, I want to talk uh, about Civil War, uh, tourism, and and uh, what one can gain from it. Uh, this will not be just a 20-minute ramble about ECU women's soccer and University of Michigan football, both of whom uh, did all right last weekend. Uh, as far as ECU men's football, no comment. Uh, but the women, uh, the soccer team, they're in second place, and they uh, tied a game on, on Sunday that they were they were winning the whole match, then they fell behind two to one, scored the tying goal with seven seconds left. And unlike uh, soccer, the rest of the, the way it's played around the world, there's no stoppage time. They actually have a second hand clock. So it was ticking down and there were seven seconds left uh, when we got the tying score. It was it was exciting. Well, last time I mentioned uh, also here in North Carolina, our state legislature passed a budget that would help out. Uh, higher education by uh, providing raises, but returning to form uh, over the past week, the legislators stuck a hidden provision into an unrelated bill that requires the UNC system to get a different accrediting agency every, I don't know, two years or every cycle. Uh, Universities are accredited. Uh, In our case, it's the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, SACS, who comes and visits us periodically and checks up on what we're all doing and makes sure that our uh, we're, we're providing the the actual content of a degree in, in not just in history but in everything in the in the university. They hold us to high standards. Sachs is a, a a gold standard accreditor, and we work hard when we know they're coming. Not that we don't when they're not coming, uh, and we work hard to fix things that they say need. Uh, looking at. The legislature, however, wants to replace them with more lenient accreditors that will let them instruct, let the legislature instruct the university to teach the equivalent of flat earth theories that appeal to their ideologies. And uh, up to now, we've been able to resist that. We tell them, you know, if we do that, we'll lose our federal funding. We won't get accredited. And they don't want that. Uh, so apparently their goal now is to get a more lenient accrediting agency recognized by Congress so we can get accredited by, you know, Joe's barbershop and university accreditors who will uh, let the legislature have us teach things they like, whether they're you know historically valid or biologically valid or geologically valid or whatever discipline you're in. Um, and as a precursor to that, they passed this bill that requires 
us to not use sex, uh, but get a different one every two years or every cycle. But even that, if you think about it, means each time we get accredited or reviewed for accreditation, we'll be told where we need to fix things. And then instead of checking up on it, a different accreditor will come in and go, oh, no, never, never mind that. Here's our concerns. And then the next cycle, the same thing will happen again. It, it's a bizarre world. Um, so chaos will ensue unless something better happens in the meantime. Uh, to avoid chaos in your life, go to www dot impediments of war dot org and find out who's going to be on this show so you can schedule yourself uh, schedule your time around that you can find out that uh, next week for example judith sumner will be with us uh talking about the botanical history of the civil war plants in the civil war uh, i thought it was crazy when i heard about it started looking at it it's not fully crazy uh November 1st, Darren Whipperman will be our guest. He has written about Burnside's Boys, the Union Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. We'll talk with Professor Robert Emmett Curran on November 8th uh, about his recent book, American Catholics and the Quest for Equality in the Civil War Era. And we'll head on into the Thanksgiving week, uh, November 15th. Andrew Dalton will be our guest. He's the director of the brand new Beyond the Battle Museum in Gettysburg. Well, I, I sort of wanted to talk about this hallowed ground, the tour. Um, once in the distant past, uh, we did a whole show about that. Uh, I'll keep it to one segment tonight. But I want to say that this tour just keeps getting better each time I do it. Uh, this past tour, the folks who traveled on the bus uh, that I was on were an absolute joy. I cannot resist giving a, a shout out to all of them who were there. Uh, I had a wonderful dinner one night with Matt and Heidi and Alan and Georgia. Uh, had a great lunch at Harper's Ferry with the Minnesota contingent, Bruce, Erica, Todd, Heather. Also from Minnesota, Terry, who uh, gave me a tip about uh, Henry B. Carrington, that's something I need to learn about. Uh, there were Civil War listeners, uh, Brent, uh, one of them, Michelle and Allen from my home state, Michigan. Uh, Allen's also a Civil War talk radio listener. There was Bill from Massachusetts who had the single best one-liner of the trip when our guide at Gettysburg was getting a little out of hand. Uh, Susan and Andy had some extremely perceptive questions. We had the Rodriguez family two sons and a father. They sat behind me on the bus, and I learned a lot. Uh, there was Angie, who patiently sat with Rodriguez Sr. Uh, to her, I say, go blue. Uh, Nigel from the UK brought us an international perspective. Don and Chris were the nicest people one could ever possibly meet. Uh, Kedzie, our tour manager, was doing this for the first time ever and did a great job. And our bus driver, George, uh, you know, the bus driver is in many ways the most important person on a tour. Uh, I've done almost every tour in the last 12 years with the same driver. Uh, his name is Hal. And Hal and I could switch jobs, and he could give the tour because he's heard it so many times, and he's, he reads a lot and is, goes to the sites. But we would all have died in a horrible bus plunge if I, we had switched jobs because I don't know how to drive a bus. So fortunately, that, that won't happen. But not having Hal as the driver, I thought, well, see how the new, this other guy does. And George was 
consummate professional and led the group in song. That doesn't usually happen, so uh, uh, quite a tour. But if you're thinking about going on this hallowed ground in May uh, next year, sign up now. This time around, so many people signed up that the company put two buses on the road. We've never done that before. And that meant all kinds of new logistical challenges. Some sites are too small to fit two buses worth of people in at a time. It did not bring any personality challenges, fortunately. I, apparently, on some of the European tours that the company does, the historians, I don't know what it is. They don't trust each other. They're jealous of one another. They have turf issues. Whatever it is, they try to keep the buses apart and go to different places on different days. That wasn't going to be practical. And the second historian, the one on the other bus, was Mark uh, Bielski. And, and you've heard him on the show before. Uh, he's an old friend. He knows what he's talking about. And I was happy to uh, work with him so we didn't have to isolate ourselves. But we did have to try new things uh, with two buses. We uh, ate lunch at a different place at Manassas uh, for one of the buses and discovered a great view from Stewart's Hill that I'd never really taken time to look at before. Uh, kind of the serendipity of, of moving groups around for practical reasons led to new discoveries. Uh, at Harper's Ferry, we had to change things because there's construction going on and the bridge over the Shenandoah River is not accessible. So we had to come in from a different angle, but it led us to see things in a better order and take a better lunch break. Uh, it, it all worked out very well. Now, there were a few glitches, as there are on every tour. Um, at Gettysburg, the website said one of the roads in the East Cavalry Field would be closed. And I always like taking groups there because nobody goes there. Uh, but it didn't say all the roads would be closed, and that was the case. So we had to skirt the edges of that part of the field. Uh, I mentioned we had a licensed battlefield guide on our bus. And as, as our guest certainly knows, dealing with with visitors to a historic site is always challenging. And I have nothing but respect for people who take the time to become licensed battlefield guides at Gettysburg. They have to pass a demanding uh, training regimen. But when you give your presentation, give presentations to a bus full of eighth graders one day and then Civil War travelers the next, it's possible to sort of misread the room and uh, uh, pitch things on the wrong level, not so much intellectually, but uh, one of the things our guide regularly said as we're going along is, are we having fun? And the answer was no. We didn't go to Gettysburg to have fun. There there were 50,000 casualties there. Uh, fun is not the right word. Uh, education, inspiration, awe, uh, uh, gratitude for sacrifice. There are a lot of emotions you feel there. But fun is not not quite the right word, certainly for this group, and and uh, that was uh, just one of those things where where the note wasn't struck quite right. Um, and Little Round Top is still closed. If you're going there this week, sorry, it's still closed. But there were many other good things. We added new things to the tour on this trip. We went to uh, 
the uh, the Chimborazo Medical Museum in Richmond. I'm going to ask the office to make that a permanent part of the trip because it's well worth 30 minutes if you're in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we added a stop at the Bloody Angle at Spotsylvania because we were going to drive close enough to it to detour there. And again, well, well worth 30 minutes. Uh, finally, on the way home, I did what I always do after a long week of doing nothing but Civil War battlefield after battlefield. I can't wait to get in my car and go to another Civil War battlefield. This time, uh, exploring on my own, I found Hatcher's Run uh, in, in, in part of the Petersburg campaign. Uh, there were fights there in, in the spring of 1865. And there are now trails that have been developed by, uh, it looks like a coalition of, of local Virginia agencies uh, and uh, know, Civil War trails participating in it. There's a mile-long trail into the woods where nobody goes with the most outstandingly preserved earthworks you've ever seen. I shouldn't tell you where it is because then everybody will go. Uh, but check out the Hatcher's Run area. So much to see. Um, I could go on for the whole show. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'll just say, uh, if you get a chance to do this hallowed ground, Stephen Ambrose historical tours, I would love to uh, have you come along and, and share the excitement. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with our guest tonight uh, to talk more about historical travel, Gene Harmon, uh, who is a heritage interpreter, interpretive consultant, and many other things. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gene Harmon of Inheriting Heritage LLC. Gene, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for your patience during the first segment. Oh, thank you very much for having me on here. 
Is uh, is Antietam part of that tour that you're talking about? It absolutely is. Yes. So I've, I've visited both Gettysburg and Antietam as, you know, as well as other sites, and I always found Antietam was much more moving and emotional than than other sites. I, you know, it was the first site I ever visited when I was ten years old, and it made such an impression that here I am today talking civil war with you for a living. Uh, I completely agree. Antietam is, is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, you can see so much of the battlefield from, one, from the visitor center. And listeners, the new visitor center is open. If you have not been to Antietam in five or ten years, you'll like the new center. If you have been there in the last two years, you'll be glad that the temporary center is gone. And they're back in the original building, and it's all uh, up-to-date, new exhibits, looks great. Um so, uh, yeah, so we had a wonderful visit there this year. Well, Gene, let me ask you uh, a question. I, when I was a, a young lawyer, I was taught never to ask a question of a witness to which I didn't already know the answer. And I've always <laughs> more or less tried to follow that, but I'm going to break the rule now. The, your material says you're an interpretive consultant. What is an interpretive consultant? It's if... I mean, a lot of sites you go to, whether it's historical, cultural, or natural, a lot of times you've gotten uh, tour guides, interpreters there, that uh, they just point at pretty things. So you take a historic house, for example, they can take you through a historic house, and they point at all this nice furniture and antique stuff, and you know, it dates back to the 17th, 18th, 18th centuries, and that's great. I mean, I love looking at that stuff, too, but are you really going to remember what they're talking about unless – they can make a personal connection to you to make you actually care about it. And that's where uh, consulting comes in is, is getting with sites to not change their, what they want to talk about. Cause every site has its own mission, uh, what they <clears throat> intend to bring to the public, but to do it in a way that engages the public and makes them think uh, provokes them to thought, but also to make a personal connect- connection so that they'll remember it what they're looking at and things about it longer than the time that they're actually at the site. So how did you get started in, in this field? How, how does one become an interpretive consultant? It's uh, I started actually in a civil war living history uh, unit back in 1994. And we always joked about you know, sitting around the campfire and I said, man, it'd be great to make a living doing this. But you know, at the time it was, you know, it was, it was a joke. Mm-hmm. Well, several years later, uh, I was working in IT field at the time. I worked in, in IT for about 20 years. And going from the transition from mainframe to networking, uh, I got laid off a couple of times. During one of the long breaks, uh, just on a whim, looking up job searches, I typed in um, you know, living history job. Mm-hmm. And actually came up with a hit for uh, Aramark. Who most people mm-hmm. recognize them as doing uniforms and you know things like that, but they are a concessioner for a lot of uh, national parks in the Northwest, and there was a job for an interpreter in Denali National Park, and just on a whim, shot in the dark, I applied for it. Uh, they called me, and uh, after a couple of phone interviews, they offered me the job, and I went up to uh, Denali for. Uh, about five months, the summer of 2013, portraying a, a 1940 park ranger at a 1920 era uh, cabin about 15 miles into the wilderness right off the park road. And I, mean, I always had a passion for interpret. Uh, now I know it's called interpretation. At the time, mm-hmm. I didn't. Uh, so I had a passion for it. 
and that summer really lit the spark. And I came. Sorry, say, Denali is in Alaska. Is that right? Yes, sir. It is. So, so you you really did take a <clears throat> take a shot at this to head up to Alaska. It definitely did. It was at the time I was living in the Atlanta, Georgia area, so really going to the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think you know, I thought it was a shot in the dark, but I came back from that, and I was able to use that experience to get a position at the Atlanta History Center as an interpreter at uh, Swan House. If you, I don't know if you've ever been there, familiar with that, but it's a 1930 era mansion that was built by Edward Inman, who was a prominent businessman in the 1930s in Atlanta, and actually spent five years portraying him in first person. But that was the question I wanted to ask then. Uh, when we talk about living history, there's first person and third person. Um, you know, it, it, listeners, when you go to a site, if the person's in costume, but they say, this is what the soldiers wore, you know, the third person, when they tell you, I am a soldier, uh, now we're in first person. So you've done both of those? Yes, sir, I have. The, the When I was working up in Alaska, I actually portrayed uh, the ranger that worked, an actual ranger that worked there in uh, 1940. And so I was able to do the research on him and actually portrayed him. And then I came back to Atlanta, portrayed, again, you know, portrayed Edward Inman at the Atlanta History Center. But I'd done it at Civil War sites. Also, at the same time, I was doing volunteer work at uh, uh, Andersonville National Historic Site, Chickamauga, um, Smith Family uh, Plantation in the Atlanta area, uh, which eventually ended up doing that as a, um, as a consultant as well. Now, I mean, living history like that can be can be done at a very high level. Uh, we had a professor here at East Carolina who uh, who gave a course in it and and taught students, and his standards were certainly high. But I'm guessing, uh, I'm sure you and your career have come across, and I know I have, and I bet most listeners have been to you know reenactments or places where people are where the reproduction is is sketchy. Not, and I don't just mean. You know, you've got the wrong caliber rifle, but uh, the message is wrong. Um, how how do you keep standards up? Uh, first of all, I totally agree with that. As I was part of the living history reenacting community for over two decades, and they're the vast majority. Don't take me wrong. If any of them are listening, great guys. <laughs> you know, great guys. I've you know, got guys I call brothers for life that I've mm-hmm. you know met met in that. But a lot of them out there are just to blow powder and yell. Mm. Um, the ones I actually prefer to do, the, the battle reenactments, or I like to call them recreations, uh, are really great. They give the audience, the spectators, a visual mm-hmm. of what a large battle looks like, especially the large national events. But I have found that the spectators, for one reason or another, don't seem to find the camps approachable at a large battle event. They kind of stand off on the sidelines and kind of just kind of look in there. Mm-hmm. And then if any of them do wander into camp, most of the guys don't have the confidence and background knowledge to actually strike a conversation. And what I mean by that is you can have, you can have the most authentic uniform out there, mm-hmm. uh, the best weapons, the best accoutrements. But if you don't know more than just about the battle you're in, you can't have a long-lasting conversation with somebody that comes up and asks you questions. With the Civil War or any era, you've got to do the background knowledge of everything in that era, 
uh, military, politics, civilian. Not that you're going to talk about it every single time you talk to somebody, mm-hmm. but those questions are going to come up. And yes, you're n- you're not going to know everything, and that's fine too. But you got to take the effort to do that extra research. Uh, you know, it's, I, I can understand what you're saying about people not wanting to go into a, a large encampment. It, it almost feel like like you're watching a play and you climb up on the stage and walk in amongst the actors, and that's not that's frowned upon. Uh, but but certainly in smaller encampments uh, where it's approachable, I, you often do see a lot of interaction with the public and the uh, and, and reenactors. Uh, you mentioned uh, Andersonville. What what kind of thing? Uh, what, who did you portray there, or what did you do uh, when you were at that site? I uh, I coordinated and implemented the living history programs there for for over ten years uh, annually. Uh-huh. We, we did it in March. I did it as a volunteer status. Uh, I'd started working with them as a volunteer, so even after I started my business, I did it as a volunteer with them as well, mm-hmm. uh, and grew it into quite a large living history. Uh, it has unfortunately since then kind of died with, with COVID and kind of dispersed. I'm now in Northwest Texas. So it's a long mm-hmm. way from Andersonville. Uh, but I, it wasn't done in third person, but we portrayed, I did my, pre- let me rephrase that. I did my presentations in third person, mm-hmm. but we had several different scenarios throughout the day with, with guard and prisoner act- interactions. We had guards in the tower. Uh, we had ration distribution, uh, we had some punishment where they had some stocks and they had a ball and chain that we could use with them. Uh, but all my presentations were done in third person. Uh, and I portrayed the uh, commander of uh, one of the guard companies that was there. Mm-hmm. And so the main story that we tried to get across was, or that I, I myself tried to get across, was what went on with the federal prisoners, mm-hmm. what they went through, and actually the horrific, horrific conditions they were in in there. Even though I was out there as a Confederate guard, my emphasis was on the over 12,000 deaths at that prison site in 15 months. That's an interesting way to approach, though. It makes a lot of sense because if, if you attempt to portray a prisoner, you know, your ribs are not going to show through your skin unless you're very dedicated and unhealthy. Uh, and even at that, visitors would not enjoy that. Um, you, you know, the Holocaust Museum doesn't do anything like that. Uh, it, it's it's one could even see it as being disrespectful to the victims. But by portraying a, a, a rebel guard, that gave you the proximity to the situation to be able to present about it. I, I, it strikes me as a very uh, uh, intelligent compromise way to to get that message across. And, and it's a way to uh, also it's. As you mentioned, you can go to any Civil War site and see somebody in uniform talking about the war. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, a spectator, a guest, they can choose whatever Civil War site they want to. And they know pretty much they're going to see somebody in uniform with a gun that goes boom. Mm-hmm. But what makes that site different? And that's what I did in my presentations at Andersonville was, yes, I talked about the guards. I went through the firings and, you know, talked about the uniforms and all that. But then I came around to talk about the prisoners and what they went through. And one of the ways I always ended up the presentation was in talking about what went on there, what the guards pretty much allowed to go on there. Mm-hmm. That some people would say, well, that's just the nature of war. I mean, you know, mm. look at what's happened 
you know, different places. You mentioned the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's the Armenia, the v- Vietnam, different places. You're going and on. But I brought it out to the fact that maybe it's not just the nature of war, but it's that dark side of human nature that exists in every one of us mm-hmm. that gets unleashed when there's not a limit on what we can do to somebody else. Well, that that you know, certainly a powerful story. Uh, you also mentioned Chickamauga. Uh, <clears throat> what did you have a similar third person presentation there? It's the work I did at Chickamauga. Uh, they have a pretty good interpretive staff there, so they handled all their basically, they guess their public presentations. But I did living history uh, programs where I was out at uh, uh, one of the remote areas of the park, and I portrayed a federal soldier that was basically under siege. So every tour group that the Rangers came up, you know, brought up, brought through there, they want to talk to me, you know, about you know what I'm wearing and this and that. And is that I want to mm-hmm. kind of do this first person, but not as a particular person mm-hmm. because I hadn't gotten the research enough to pick a specific person. But anyway, you immediately changed the conversation to, do you know if food's coming through? Mm. We're, 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 we're hungry. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting low on water. Can, can you help us out? And it immediately made them kind of, yeah, they're kind of taking them back going, well, wait a minute, this, this isn't quite what I was expecting, but okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you yeah, emphasize the suffering that this, the federal soldiers went through in that siege of Chattanooga. I, I mean, in that interaction with people, when you're when you are in first person, uh, there's always the, the the challenge of dealing with the public. Uh, on this tour I was describing earlier, we did not see a lot of first person interpretation. Uh, we saw some third person interpretation at a wonderful house museum in Gettysburg. Uh, but then we had a, uh, but at Appomattox, uh, some of the National Park Service staff there uh, do first-person presentations, and they're just hanging around the village, and you chat with them and ask them a question, and they give you an answer in first person. And every time I watched a visitor do this, a visitor would start poking and prodding, seeing if they could uh, get them to break character, uh, which almost distracted from the the. The, the the quality of the interaction. Did you experience that a lot? People trying to get you out of your character? Uh, definitely. And that's another reason why I emphasize background knowledge, do mm-hmm. as much research as possible, because that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're going to try to get you out of character. Um, and, and I've seen a lot of places where you, if the spectator or guest asks, the interpreter in there in first person ask them about something after that person's time frame mm-hmm. they say they can't answer it but you can you just have to change the tense of how you're answering mm. uh, for instance the gentleman i portrayed in atlanta he, he died in 1931 mm-hmm. of course so much happened in atlanta after he passed away uh, so they would add, i quite often i would get questions well what did your wife do you say 1940. What did she do after you died? And so, it was, well, and I would, instead of going, uh, well, I don't know that because I was dead, <laughs> I would say, well, after I pass away, she would go on and do this. Mm-hmm. So you can still answer those questions in first person. You're not breaking character, but you're letting the spectator know, number one, what they're, you know what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and number two, you can go on and answer the question 
just by changing intensity of the words. It, it just it reminds me of when you see tourists in London, you know, poking the grenadier guards in their sentry boxes, uh, uh, which you don't want to do, uh, but but trying to, to get somebody to you know smile or, or break out of their their role. It, and it, it can distract, certainly, from, from actually trying to teach someone uh, about something. Um, you mentioned COVID. Uh, it's sort of, a, I guess, a bigger question. Did, did that, how did that affect what you do? Uh, quite largely. Um, and one of the reasons why I've moved from out here to northwest Texas, uh, I had – Quite a few presentations and, and business business things lined up uh, when COVID started, and uh, of course all the face to face interaction that kind of died overnight. Uh, I pretty much had fifteen different uh, clients cancel on me you know, within a, a week time frame. Uh, what kept me going and the fire going in me during that time with COVID was I did a six month project with Cape Lookout National Seashore. And it was all done virtually by phone calls, uh, by email, and I created interpretive programs for for them to use there at the park. And it's it's still, I think, the museum type atmosphere, uh, not so much in national parks because in state parks people always visit them, but museums itself they're pretty still you know, still hurting from that, still trying to rebuild that face to face interaction like it was. It, yeah, we saw that certainly on our trip that things are are coming back, but not fully back for sure. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight. He is Gene Harmon of Inheriting Heritage, LLC, interpretive consultant. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gene Harmon of Inheriting Heritage LLC. He is an interpretive consultant, uh, a living historian, has done first and third person interpretation, worked at uh, park service sites like Chickamauga and Chattanooga, Andersonville and others. Um, another one uh, I saw on your website you mentioned is Pamplin Park. Uh, which is uh, a wonderful museum and battlefield uh, just outside of Petersburg uh, that is privately owned. Uh, the Georgia Pacific uh, CEO or somebody <clears throat> high up there uh, has created this this private museum. I mean, open to the public, but it, it's not a park service enterprise. And it has a chunk of the uh, fortifications from the Petersburg campaign on it. Uh, as well as great exhibits, the place we visit on this hallowed ground. Uh, what what did you uh, do in connection with Pamplin Park? A few years ago, I went up there during one of their anniversary weekends. I was invited to come up by the uh, interpretive manager there at the time. I can't remember his name. But uh, for I guess almost 15 years, I've commanded my own living history unit. It was the second second Georgia sharpshooters, and we did the 64th Illinois as federal. So he wanted me to come up there and do a sharpshooter program, which is a very aspect of the war that's not really talked about. Mm-hmm. Everybody imagines the you know, shoulder to shoulder massive lines moving across the open fields and woods and all, but sharpshooters were basically put out there to a lot like scouts these days or you to, to fill out the enemy and to, you know, first make engagements with them. Uh, anybody familiar with the movie Gettysburg, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first engagement was, you know, with Buford's uh, sharpshooters or mm-hmm. they were spread out of sharpshooters. Right. They, and, they play and, that and, role. Yeah. And that was the, the main thing with sharpshooters is they don't, they didn't stand shoulder to shoulder. Uh, they took cover behind rocks, behind little swales, trees, anything they could, and, but you still moved as a military unit. And so I went up there and working with about four or five of the interpreters they had up there that did things in uniform, uh, worked with them and trained them on, on how to how sharpshooters moved. So I was able to do programs and presentations showing the public a different style of fighting from the Civil mm-hmm. War, not just that shoulder to shoulder, but mm-hmm. this happened too, which reminds you more of, of modern military movements. Well, that, that uh, it would be interesting to see that they don't have anything like that currently there. Again, there's still some COVID recovery going on, um, but that would be a very interesting presentation. Now, if somebody wants to get into this field, uh, you know, I have students who are concentrating in public history as undergrads. We offer a public history concentration uh, in our master's history program at, at East Carolina. Uh, I got into public history without formal training in the field. I just was discovered myself working in a museum and found out, hey, I've become a public historian. Uh, it sounds like your path was somewhat similar. If you're hiring someone today, do you look for somebody with a history degree, a master's degree, or, or what? How do you get in the field? It, to you know, a lot of places, they look for those degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself would not. If you've got a passion for the subject material mm-hmm. and a willingness to, con- to, to continually learn, uh, I've said myself, I, I don't know it all. I will never know it all. Mm. If you ever hear me say that, hit me with a two by four because I've lost <laughs> my mind. 
Uh, so it's, it's continual research, and it, it, there has to be a passion for it. Uh, one of the uh, places I worked for uh, as a job doing interpretation toward the end, uh, I left there not too long after that, but one of the managers when we were talking about needing re- more, you know, more time for research, if if we did some research at home, because we get a couple hours, you know, on the clock at home, mm-hmm. and and she goes, "Why do you need to research?" Mm. Uh, uh, what? what? <laughs> so it's, it's so degrees. It really to me, it really degrees in this field mm-hmm. um, aren't necessary. It just takes a passion, a willingness to learn, a willingness to engage with people, even those tough conversations, because you're going to have those as well. And you've got to have, again, that background knowledge so you can have a conversation. It's not a field that you can get into if you're easily offended because there's too many tough subjects out there. Well, that is certainly true. Um, I'm not going to tell my students what you just said. I'm going to continue to tell them they, they need their degree uh, to enter the field. Uh, and I, I would argue it does give a leg up if you have two people who are equally passionate and one has formal training and the other doesn't. Uh, well, like I said, you most places look for that. Right. But <laughs> – well, there's something else on your website that I found interesting. Uh, in addition to the places we've talked about, uh, Civil War sites where you've done interpretive work, uh, you also offer your services to private companies, corporations. Is there a market for that? Uh, and and what what message, uh, or should there be a market for that? Why, why should they hire you? As far as you're referring to the sales market, sales training and marketing, uh, not not so much the sales training, but just um, uh, I, I mean, in if you go to Gettysburg, there are there are leadership tours you can find on the battlefield going on, uh, and I, I participated in one when I worked at Lincoln Museum, where the uh, the staff of Lincoln National Life Insurance went to Gettysburg, uh, or for that matter, my uh, Michigan Wolverine football team went to Gettysburg. Uh, before this season for inspiration and team building. Uh, and there, there are questions within the, the field uh, academically and, and elsewhere. If, if that's an appropriate use for history to, uh, as a team building exercise. Uh, what, so what, what, tell me what you do and, and how you think about this. Any, anything you, any subject you look at, whether you're talking in this case history or a business, so, say an employer or business, uh, you want your employees to care of not only about you, not about the business but also your product, and you also want your employees to get along with each other, which increases productivity, increases them caring about each other. And therefore, making the business better. So, a lot of what we look at as far as interpretation, wanting the guests to care about a site by getting them to think, these team building exercises like that gets them to think outside the box and gets them to pretty much set a cliche again to say, but to care. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it is better for the business. It's better for the team. It's it's better for whatever group is doing this together. Because if they really don't care about it, it they're not going to last. 
mm-hmm. and it's going to affect the the company one way or another. So what what do you, what would you present then? What what do you bring if I if I've got uh, if I call together the whole staff of Civil War Talk Radio, which would be me, um, and of course Mark Gaffney who runs the website, uh, although we've never met. Uh, I assume he's a real person, uh, but but it, <laughs> if you brought together a small company of, of ten employees, uh, what? Why not just go to a regular motivational guy? Why why a historical consultant? It's a lot of motivational stuff. Is yes, they want you to get out there and you know think you know great about yourself and and improve yourself and therefore improve what you're doing. But if you brought the suggestion, say Civil War Talk Radio, that staff. Mm-hmm. It's it's obvious you care about what you're doing, but how do you get other people to care about what you're doing? Hmm. What are you doing to get those other people outside Civil War Talk Radio to care about what you're doing, to connect with what you're doing? Again, I wouldn't sit down and tell you, well, you need to talk about this or you need to talk about that. No, that's, I mean, you have stuff you want to talk about and I would not interfere with that. (laughs) But it's changing the perception to getting your message out in a way that connects with people so that they care about what you're doing. Uh, Civil War, as you know, that time frame is a very volatile, very tough subject for a number Mm -hmm. of reasons. And so you've got to not only attract and bring bring your message across in a way that attracts all those people that have the Civil War interest, which they're automatically going to gravitate towards something like this anyway. But you want to also reach those people that normally would not listen to you because of it being a tough subject, because of certain things that people talk about these days. So how do you get around that? How do you get those people? And things like that is what I would really work on with a group to do, to get those, not just the people you already have, mm -hmm. but the people you don't have. Have have you seen a change in audiences? Uh, And I will say I've seen this in in audiences I've spoken to and tour groups. Um, Ten years ago, there was no risk of a group splintering uh, and and people taking sides against each other when they're on a social, you know, on a vacation tour or even going to listen to a speaker. Uh, but now it's not at all unimaginable for a person to say, "Oh, I hate when they tear down those monuments. All those, you know, they're communists and hippies and and." Uh, and someone else says, "Well, those monuments are for slavery." And and suddenly, people are have political step in their political corners, and dialogue ends, and they they just see the other side as the enemy. Um, how do you avoid that happening to your audience? It's that's a tough one. Uh, you have to number one, not get offended by it yourself, which I've seen right. some interpreters, they automatically go on the defensive. They get oh, offended. You can't do that. You can't do that. You're in the wrong occupation. Yeah. Um, so you more or less try to have conversation with them. Um, a- as an example, just getting provoking people to thought, uh, mm-hmm. it, doing after one of my presentations in Andersonville, as I said, I mentioned I did as a Confederate guard, but talked about the federal prisoners. And even though they're the war was about slavery. That site in particular's message was about the 12,000 federal deaths there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't talk about slavery in my presentation, but I had this lady come up to me afterwards and she goes, I want to thank you for 
telling everybody the war wasn't about slavery. Cool. And she turned turned and walked off. And I was like, well, wait, wait a minute, man. Uh, <laughs> actually, now that you brought it up, it, it was. Right. She, tur- she turned on me like a shark on bloody meat, yelling mm. at me about her poor you know, ancestors. They didn't have slaves. They didn't care. The war wasn't about slavery. Da, 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 da. And mm-hmm. when she took a, took a breath, I said, ma'am, I don't think your poor dirt farmer ancestor wanted to be poor all his life. He wanted a nice house. He wanted land. He wanted crops. He wanted livestock. He wanted wagons. And she goes, well, yeah. I said, what does that mean in the, in the antebellum South? And she was quiet mm-hmm. for a minute. And then she turned around. She turned around to walk away. She, I heard her very quietly go, slaves. Mm. So it made her think about the fact that the war was about slavery, whether you were a rich man or not, because that was the culture at the time. Sure. No, well, that that's a uh, that is a great challenge, and I I find public speaking that that comes up all the time. Um, that I have. Ten dozen more questions, and we don't have time for them. Um, are you working on something right now? Uh, actually, just trying to get actually trying to get it uh, my business going out here, still in Northwest Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. I do uh, uh, writing. Uh, I do have my own podcast, the Inheriting Heritage podcast, mm-hmm. uh, but still sending out uh, uh, things to different museum sites and you know, across the country. Uh, still trying to get uh, get it launched out here in Texas. Well, well, best of, of luck with that. I, I do tell my students in public history, it's not the field to enter if, if it's your goal to own a big house and a big fine car uh, or two. Uh, we do it because we love it, because we're passionate about it, and uh, it provides great satisfaction, but it, it's not necessarily the most lucrative uh, field, and it does take sacrifice. So anyone who does it deserves a appreciation. You definitely um, need that passion. You, you really do, or, or it doesn't go. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, as I, I said, I rarely start a conversation with a question where I'm not quite sure where it's going to go. Uh, but uh, I recognize a lot of similarities in what, what you do and what people I've worked with in public history do. Um, I've never worn uh, historic clothing. I've never done anything first or third person um, and don't plan to, but I have great respect for those who do. Uh, so listeners, next time you see somebody who is uh, presenting uh, in that fashion, don't just try to trip them up, but uh, engage with them, have a conversation and, and see what you can learn. Uh, so Gene, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you very much for the opportunity, sir. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.